Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Let's read verses 17 through 21. Verses 17 through 21. Would you please stand if you can? Here's the word of the Lord. Brothers, join imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now I tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Their mindset is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You can be seated. Let's pray. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You are beautiful beyond description. We stand amazed that you, the creator of all things, would call us into your family, that you would adopt us to be children of God, and we can call you Abba. What a privilege it is. And we come to you in Christ, through Christ, by the power of your Spirit, and we ask you to help us this morning. These are things that we cannot do on our own. Apart from You, we can do absolutely nothing. So help us, help me to preach faithfully and help the congregation to listen faithfully. Father, we pray for those who are not here this morning, those who are sick, those who are traveling. We pray they would cover them under Your wings. Strengthen them with your mighty mercy. We also pray for the churches here in the Salem area. Bless your people. Build up your church. So please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Early this month, uh, the Economist of London, they published an article about Christianity in China. And the title of the article was, China wants to make its Christians more Chinese. And the article from The Economist is basically showing the fear that China has of really other religions, and especially Christianity. Uh, they say in the article, it says, Long before the Communist Party seized power, took over in 1949, people used to say, one more Christian, one fewer Chinese. 
Don't you wish that was taking place right here? <laughs> one more Christian, one fewer Chinese. Officials in China still mutter this phrase today. In the 1950s, the party began cutting Chinese Christianity's links with foreign, foreign churches and requiring believers to worship only in government-authorized venues. Eventually, all religious activity was banned and brutally crushed. A few years after the death of Mao Zedong in 1976, restrictions were partially relaxed. This led to an explosion of Christian worship, much of it in small house churches with no official links. Protestantism grew especially fast, as did its foreign connections. Foreign missionaries often working as teachers pour back into China. Now, in an, effort to, in an effort to reassert control, China is trying once again to signify Christianity. To make Christianity like their own idea what Christianity must look like. So, be, make Christianity more like their Chinese government. So the churches, they must be registered. The government must be able to know what you are preaching and what's going on inside the church. There is even a new attempt now with the Chinese government to rewrite the New Testament. So they are in charge of rewriting the New Testament. So the New Testament will endorse the communist and socialist ideas. So that's what's taking place in China. So you see that Christianity is a major threat, not only in China, but in any place where you have a totalitarian type of government. Christianity is a threat. It's a threat because the power of the gospel causes people to be born again into a new kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. People gain a different citizenship, and that's a big threat to the government. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to transfer people's commonwealth from China or the U.S., or Cuba, into the commonwealth of heaven. So the church stands as an embassy from heaven in different territories of the earth, declaring that no man has power over the church, and that every man one day will have to give an account to Christ Jesus. So you have all these embassies all over the world, the churches, they're just like outposts, military outposts all over the world. And that brings panic into man's government, especially totalitarian government. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings people a new birth, a new citizenship, and a new commonwealth. And it's amazing how the greatest tyrants of all, they fear the smallest of churches of all. Think about that. The most powerful men, the greatest tyrants, they fear the smallest of the churches. They fear small churches gathering together in a basement. Isn't that amazing? That the people with the most powerful weapons, they fear a small group of people who have no weapons whatsoever assembling in a park, in a garage. Isn't that amazing? Because they know somehow that that is an outpost. 
There is an embassy from somewhere else that will defy their authority. So they hate the church and they are scared of the church. So as we come to Philippians chapter 3, and that's basically what Paul is about to show us. The nature of the church. So here's the outline of this morning's sermon. We are going to be looking at the church's citizenship, verse 20. The first part of verse 20. And then the church's hope. That's the second part of verse 20 through verse 21. So it says, right in the beginning of verse 20. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And if you have uh, any ASB or King James, you know that says, for our citizenship. If you have a King James for our conversation. For, but there is a difference between but and for. The Greek is a better translation before. For our citizenship, for our commonwealth is in heaven. And it is important because I believe that it's developing Paul's argument here throughout the letter. So I have here for you to see. So in verse 17 you have the exhortation. Brothers, join imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then Paul explains why the church must be looking at those who are walking according to the example that Paul is setting. And in the Greek construction you have four and then four. For many of whom I have told you, remember, keep your eyes on those who are following Christ because... You will have enemies that will try to get your attention and conquer you, overcome you. And then he gives another reason why the church must be looking at those who are an example of the mindset of Christ. Because our citizenship is in heaven. That's why we must keep our eyes on those who are marching, those who are fighting according to heaven's orders. That's what Paul is telling us. They need to imitate those who are marching in accordance to heaven commands. And the people whom we imitate are indicators of our true citizenship. So that's what Paul's argument here. That's why I think it's better for our citizenship. You must keep your eyes open, attentive, looking, imitating godly people. Because here's the reason. You are not part of this earth. You have a heavenly citizenship. And there is a, as you are reading, there is a, a, a glorious contrast between the earth dwellers and those who have a citizenship in heaven. So if you compare verses 18 and 19 with verses 20 and 21, you see there is the pronoun, their, they, and our, they're earthly, we are heavenly. Their end is destruction. Ours is salvation. Belly is their God. Jesus is our Lord. Shame is their glory. And we will receive a body of glory. So there is a beautiful contrast. And that's what Christianity is. Christianity is a contrast with all other types of religions and all types of lifestyle. 
I believe it was Spurgeon who said, the Christian life is not a matter of comparison, but contrast, a drastic contrast with all other lifestyles. And you see that the lifestyle is connected to the destination. That's amazing. There is a lifestyle. Oh, their God is their belly. They glory in shameful things. And their destination is what? Destruction. You see, the destination, according to God's mathematics, determine our lifestyle. Those who are destined to heaven, they have a different lifestyle. That's the completely opposite of what we have today. It's all about blaming where you were, where you were born, where you are right now. Christianity is the opposite. Because we are heading to heaven, because heaven or the new heavens and the new earth is our destination, therefore that affects how we live right now. The city that defines your identity is not the one in which you were born or the one that you live right now, but the city where you are heading to. So Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven. The word citizenship, politoma, politoma. And you see the poly there, polis we have, where we have police, politics, related to the Greek understanding of city, state. And if you read Greek dictionaries, Greek lexicons, you're going to see that most of them, they say that this word refers to the state, as they understood the state, uh, commonwealth, or citizenship. So whatever translation you have, we work. And I think Peter O'Brien, in his commentary, he makes a good point that's very similar to kingdom. The idea here is belonging to this kingdom. So we have our citizenship, our commonwealth in heaven. And that makes a lot of sense because that's the only place in the New Testament that Paul applies that to Christians. And he's using in the church to the Philippians because of the historical background. And that's crucial to understand what Paul is doing here. The city of Philippi became a Roman colony. So the citizens of Philippi, they became Roman citizens after the Battle of 42 B.C. And the Battle of 42 B.C. was a very important battle in the Roman history where you had Mark Anthony and Octavian or Octavius and they were fighting against Brutus and Cassius because they had assassinated Julius Caesar. And they defeated the armies or the forces of Brutus and Cassius in Philippi, in Macedonia. And then after that, Rome starts sending soldiers to the area to become a Roman colony. So Philippi was basically a little Rome in Macedonia. In Greek territory. That's very important. One could only be a citizen of Philippi if he was a Roman citizen. And remember, not everybody who was in Philippi was a Philippian. So not everybody who was in Philippi had a Roman citizenship. But the 
citizens of Philippi, those who had a citizenship in Philippi, they were Romans also. So the city of Philippi knew very well what it meant to have a distant commonwealth. They understood very well what it is to be a place far away from another place and yet be directly governed by the other place. Many citizens of Philippi, they have never been to Rome. It's not like that was easy for them to take an airplane from Philippi and go to Rome. No, that was a long trip. So many, I would say even most of the citizens of Philippi had never been to Rome. They had never seen Caesar face to face. And yet, what? They belong to Rome. They're Roman citizens. Therefore, Paul reminds the church in Philippi that heaven must dictate their lifestyle. So just like Philippi, you'd go to Philippi and you'd see a little Rome. That's what Paul is using to teach what the church must be like. So in Brazil, we have a lot of... Uh, have a massive population of Japanese people. So you go into Sao Paulo and you have the, the it's basically a, a Japanese colony. They speak Japanese. It's all their culture right there. So it's similar to something like that. So they're in Macedonia, in Greece, and yet it's a Roman colony. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, he writes, Since Philippi was a col colony... Of Rome, its politoma, the register of its citizens was kept in Rome. So the citizenship, the, the records were all in Rome. Its mother city. As citizens of a Roman colony were expected to promote the interest of their mother city and maintain its dignity, so citizens of heaven in an earthly environment should represent the interest of their true homeland and lead lives worthy of their citizenship. Another important, very important aspect of Roman citizenship is, especially early in Roman history, was the connection between a, being a citizen and having the privilege of being a soldier of Rome. Later with time they changed those things, but in the beginning there was a very precious privilege of being a Roman citizen and being able to fight for Rome, being a soldier of Rome. And that's of the picture that Paul is painting here. The church is a military outpost of the kingdom of heaven. A military base that was dispatched from heaven itself into the area of Philippi. And Paul says that our citizenship is, not will be, shall be, hopefully, is in heaven right now. That's very important. Therefore, you must be living right now as one who belongs to heaven. And also, there is a, a, a very profound shift as you think about under the old covenant and now under the new covenant because under the old covenant there was a land, earthly Zion, Jerusalem, that was the center. 
the Jews would be everywhere around the world and they would claim their citizenship in Zion, Zion, Jerusalem. That was their homeland. But you see, with the coming of Jesus and He fulfills all those promises related to land and temple, He becomes the true temple, the true land. Therefore, our citizenship is actually in Christ. But where is Christ right now? In heaven. That's why our citizenship is in heaven. It's not in an earthly place, but in heaven because Christ is there. And once Christ returns to make all things new, then our citizenship will be here. And I restore new heavens and new earth. So, heaven is the opposite of earth. You think about heaven is the holy of holies where the holy one is dwelling. And the church on earth is part of heaven. I love what Spurgeon said. He says, This book, the Bible, is the newspaper of heaven. And therefore, we must, we must love it. The sermons which are preached are good news from a far country. The hymns we sing are notes by which we tell our Father of our welfare here. And by which we, He whispers into our soul, his continued love to us. All these are and must be pleasant to us, for our commerce is with heaven. The church is an embassy, is an outpost of the holy of holies. That's so vital for us to think through these things. So much out there trying to tell us that the church must look like, the church must smell like the society. We need to make the church look like the city. No! We need to make the church look like heaven. The holy of holies. Not our environment. So much in Christianity today, especially here where we are, is all about making the church look like our city, our society. Shorter sermons. Pleasant sermons. No deep theology. Otherwise, going to scare people. We are not called to resemble our earthly city, but our heavenly city. The holy habitation where the will of God is done. And of all the places where a sinner can come, the church must be the strangest place for a sinner to be at. The church must be the strangest, most uncomfortable place for a sinner to be at. Because he's confronted with the holiness of God who is in heaven and now is showing his holiness through his embassy, the church. So sinners should never come to a church and feel comfortable. Oh, they must feel strange, the love that's here, the holiness that is here. Must look like foolishness. People walk by through those doors. They look at us. And they must think, that's so foolish. That's so stupid. They're spending their Sunday morning singing and then listening to a man for an hour. It must be. 
And we should never be ashamed of that. The church is the primary place where God displays true reality. I was talking to Ruth last Lord's Day, how the church is the primary theater of God's reality. This is more real than being outside at the beach, at the mountains right now. There's nothing more real than heaven. Where God is, where Christ is. Executing, orchestrating, governing all things. The church gathered is the most glorious picture of the reality because it resembles the reality of eternity in heaven. And it's amazing because some churches here in our town, they gather together on Sundays twice a month. And do you know what they do the other Sundays? They say that they need to be in the society. They need to be doing something. So two Sundays in the month, they have a church meeting. And the other Sundays, they are doing something. Because that's not real. This thing here is not reality. Real is out there. That's their argument. That's foolishness. That's reality. God's people assemble together, reflecting what's going on in heaven. And what is going on in heaven right now? All the heavenly creatures together is the glorified saints praising the Lord, getting to know the Lord, hearing His voice. So, there is nothing more real than assembling together as a church, obeying the Scriptures. The church is the theater of reality. Don't ever be ashamed of all we do here. That's the most real of all realities that we are doing here. And I know because people, especially involved with other pastors, other leaders, there is this, what are you doing? Oh, you guys spend all that time together? How about the real world? What real world? Our reality is heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from there, Paul says, it's from there, there is the church's hope. And from there we await, the ESV says, a Savior. Better would be this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is the abode of Jesus Christ. Jesus is in heaven right now, reigning, ruling, governing all things. And it's important for us to think that heaven is not the ultimate goal or the ultimate destination. For now, heaven is our destination because who is there? Christ. But that's not our final destination because there will be one day when Christ will return and make, transform this whole cosmos affected by sin into a cosmic garden of Eden where we will dwell with Him and see Him face to face. And Paul says that we await the Savior. Important word there. I like how the NIV translates. We wait eagerly. We are eagerly awaiting. That's the, the picture of the word. There is this expectation. 
I know how some of you love waiting at the DMV. Right? Such a wonderful place to be waiting. That has nothing to do with that type of waiting. This waiting here, there is nothing of passivity. It's not a pathetic. It's actually something that you are doing, you're moving. The only picture that came to my mind is, for example, you work, I suppose, okay, David, you. David, he has his shift, he needs to work his shift there, but he knows that right after his shift is done, he's going to go into a beautiful place for a vacation with his most beloved friends. And I'm there, David. <laughs> and what is he doing during the day? The plane leaves at night. He's working hard. He's not sitting at home waiting. He has work to do. But as he's working, his mind is where? Oh, man, I can't wait to be done with this. Because there is something much greater waiting for me. That's the picture that Paul has here. And one of the marks of a healthy Christianity, a healthy Christianity is the eager expectation that Jesus is coming back. And the mark of an unhealthy Christianity is, this is my place. Oh, if Jesus comes right now, so much I have to do. No, Jesus, don't come. The mark of a healthy Christianity is, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. How wonderful would that be if every morning you open your curtains, you open your window, you look to heaven and says, Lord, come. Come, Lord. I can't wait to see you and be with you. And sometimes people, they avoid eschatology. The, the, coming, the second coming of Christ is eschatology. The, the consummation of all things. We don't need to talk about these things. Actually, eschatology is profoundly practical. You read through the Bible. Eschatology must affect our living. Leads to holiness. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Look at that already, but not yet. That's very important. We are God's children now, already. And what will be has not yet appeared. Not yet. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And look how He says, And everyone who thus hopes in Him does what? Purifies himself as He is pure. There is no passivity. The waiting for Christ must be leading to holiness. I cannot wait to meet with the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, I must be holy to be with Him. So, Paul says, for our citizenship, our commonwealth is in heaven. And from there, we are eagerly awaiting the Savior. You see, the Christian hope is not a thing... It's not an abstract, abstract doctrine, but it's a person. The Christian hope is a person. is the person of Jesus Christ, who Paul calls the Savior. The Savior. That, that's a massive theology of salvation, beginning 
in Genesis up to Revelation. The Savior, how God is the Savior. Yes, God raised humans to be saviors like the judges and kings. But ultimately, God is the Savior of His people. And then Paul defines who the Savior is. The Lord Jesus Christ. And you can just picture that Sunday morning as the church is gathered in Philippi and somebody's reading this letter and there's some visitors there and suddenly the man who is reading the letter says, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can just picture the visitor pulling a coin out of his pocket and looking at the coin. The Roman coins always had, who is the Savior? Who is the Lord? Caesar. Oh! Now he's saying that the Savior and the Lord is that man from Galilee who was crucified. You see, the, the, the gospel is scandalous. It's scandalous. Not Caesar. Actually putting Jesus over Caesar. He's the Lord of Caesar. And for the Jews, what a blasphemy. To say that man who was naked, hanging under the curse of the law, is the Lord Yahweh, the Savior of His people. That's what the Gospel is. Scandalous. So our hope is not and cannot be on... And any earthly person or thing. Our hope is the person of Jesus who is in heaven right now. My hope is built though nothing less. And you know, we just sang here. That must be the reality in our hearts. And I think with all that's going on around us, all, all that's taking place with government, that has been very revealing where our hope is. What we have been talking. What has been coming out of our mouth. What we have been doing. Has been very revealing of where our hope truly is. And then Paul says, when this Savior comes, He will transform our lowly bodies, our lowly body, it's important, singular, to be like His glorious body. And that's, Paul is saying that when Jesus comes, our body will be transformed to be just like the resurrected body. That's what Paul is doing here. And I was thinking, why of all the things, think about all the things that will take place when Jesus comes back. Final judgments, rewards, a new heaven, a new earth. Of all the things Paul targets, the body, the glorified body. That's amazing. And it makes sense. I was thinking, why would Paul target the body? We know that the church in Philippi is suffering under what? Persecution. When persecution or affliction takes place, what is the most natural reaction of men? Shift into preservation mode. I need to preserve my body. I need to preserve my body. 
I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer. So that's brilliantly what Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does. He says, forget it. Forget it. You will receive a glorious body. We don't need to fear what they can do to the body since a new and perfect body is on the way. I like what Stephen Fowle, he says in his commentary, he says, If we read this passage in the light of Paul's claim about magnifying Christ in his body, in chapter 1, verse 20, it also reinforces the view that despite the efforts of the Roman Empire and all other empires to control the bodies of their subjects, they cannot do so with Christian bodies. Any humiliation an empire might place on the bodies of the faithful will be transformed and redeemed by the power of the resurrected Christ. And that's one of the main reasons why totalitarian governors, they hate Christianity. Because faithful Christians, they don't fear what they can do to their bodies. All the torture, being burned alive, being drowned, being executed, beheaded. Is that all that you can do? This is a wonderful message, brothers and sisters. This is a wonderful message for the persecuted church. What a glorious missionary message right here. For those who are being persecuted, those who are going to the mission field, and I hope that the Lord will wake you up. Because some of you are very fearful of what can happen to your body. Some of you are very fearful of your body. Some of you will not leave this place in order to preach the gospel to other people who desperately need the gospel because you are so fearful what people can do to your body. Right now I have heard of Christians. I will never take this vaccine. Not even if the Lord calls you to go to China, to India, to the Middle East. Because you are so scared of what can happen to your body. They are unwilling to take the gospel. People not assembling together because of the fear of the virus. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal body also. The body they make you. His truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. Let's stop fearing what can do they can do to the body. That's Paul here, just encouraging. Forget it. Don't hide yourself. Don't go under your couch, under your bed to try to hide. Otherwise, it might be revealing that you actually will never receive the body of glory that's reserved for Christians. So, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body 
And here enters the theology of transformation or confirmation that Paul is expanding. Paul says, that's important, that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Romans 8.20 Because we were predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And this whole process of being conformed into the image of the Son has already begun. Has already started. It started by giving us a new heart. You see, it begins internally, this process. So Paul can say, and I have there in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. So there is a process in which the comfort, to be conformed to the image of the Son has already begun by giving us a new heart. So this is Christianity is a long process of transformation and will culminate when finally we get a new body to be a body just like the body of Christ, the resurrected Christ. The work of Christ is complete and wholesome, covering the whole created order. In the same way that He can judge soul and body, He's able and powerful to save soul and body. Sometimes we forget that the salvation that Christ is bringing to completion is complete, is full. Paul describes our present body as lowly body. Our body of humility. That's a word that Paul has been using throughout Philippians. Tapeno. Humble. Humility. Low. And what Paul is doing is saying that this body that we have right now is a body inherited from whom? Adam. The man of earth. The body that we have is a body inherited from Adam has been affected, infected, contaminated with sin. But there will be one day when this body will be transformed. And there must be this transformation, do you see? In order to be with Christ. Once Christ comes back, there will be a renewal of all things. It's not that He's going to annihilate this world. He's going to transform this world earth, to become a glorious earth in order to have His presence here, His glorious presence. Therefore, we need a new body, a body that's not contaminated with sin, a body that has not been infected with sin. Think about priests. The priest before entering into the Holy of Holies, he had to be washed, he had to have the special garments, the garments had to be all clean. And the same once Christ returns and He makes His His dwelling place, the Holy of Holies, a gigantic cosmic Eden where man once again has access to God face to face. Therefore, we need glorified bodies to be in the presence of the glorified One. That's what will take place and that's what Paul is telling us. We must have new bodies that are fit for dwelling in the presence of the Holy One. 
but is completely disinfected from any sinful stain. I have time, so I like, I like to quote Michael Horton. He says, In its present condition, this body cannot withstand the glory of the heavenly city. It must be glorified as Christ's body was in order to participate in the age to come. Flesh and blood in its present fallen condition cannot endure the joys of Zion. Nevertheless, our bodies will be changed, not replaced. So the contrast is not between this body and another body, but between this body in its lowly condition and this body changing to the glorious condition of Christ's own body. There is no annihilation. It's a transformation that's going to take place. So there is continuity and discontinuity. We are creatures of time and space, and we will not transcend our humanity, but the bondage of our humanity to the conditions of sin and death. As a bride, we need beautiful garments to come into the presence of the groom. And that's exactly what takes place. As if we get new garments into come into the presence of the Holy One. So Paul says this body, this body will be transformed. And we are quick to think about our personal, individual body, but it's important to remember also that the church as a body, the bride, will be transformed into a glorified body. And he says... We will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. And here Paul is quoting, he's alluding to Psalm 8, 6, Psalm chapter 8, verse 6. that talks about this Adamic figure with everything under his feet. Daniel chapter 7, Psalm 110. That's what Paul is doing here. And he's applying to Christ. And he is right now, he has all this power in action. That's what the word energia means. Power in action. He's performing all these things. And just as you read this whole section here, it's, especially if you're reading in the original Greek, it's kind of unescapable. The, the lexical similarities between what took place in chapter 2 and now what Paul is doing right here where he talks about Jesus in the form of God, in the form of a slave. There you have the word morphe. And then now he talks about us, conform, sumorphos, to his body. He talks about existing in the form of God and how our citizenship exists right now in heaven. The likeness. He humbled himself, our humble bodies. So, all these similarities here, all these lexical similarities that he has is a beautiful declaration that Jesus humbled himself in order to have us in a glorified state. He humbled himself in order to raise us up. And also, it's important, these similarities remind us that the Bible teaches that what we worship, we resemble. 
what we, re- what we worship, we resemble. Either for destruction or for salvation. So those who worship Christ and they imitate Christ, they will be like Christ. And we receive a body of glory just like His. But those who worship earthly things, those who are venerating the things of the earth, their end is earthly destruction. That's what Paul is teaching us. So to finish, Paul says, For our commonwealth, our citizenship is in heaven. Is in heaven. And it's tempting for some of us to raise our hands and say, Paul, Paul, excuse me, you forgot, we have double, we have dual citizenship, Paul. You're forgetting about earthly citizenship, Paul. How about my American citizenship, Paul? It's amazing that he doesn't say anything about earthly citizenship. And let me remind you that the church has no dual citizenship. The church has no dual citizenship. It was Jesus who said, My kingdom is not of this world. And the church is an embassy of His kingdom. The Bible says actually that we have no lasting city here. Stephen following his commentary, he says, Why do Christians, I think it's so wise how he puts here, why do Christians will need to discuss and discern together the concrete shape of a common life worthy of the gospel in the light of the particular secular orders that they find themselves under? They must avoid thinking of themselves as holding dual citizenship. They have one Lord and they serve one Master. Peter says that we are elect exile, pilgrims. I know that many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress. Yes, pilgrims, moving, moving. That's not our place. Peter also calls us foreigners, sojourners. So Stephen Fowles, he goes on, he says, Paul does not call the Philippians to a dual citizenship. Rather, he calls them out of a false politics ruled by a false savior and directed by an earthbound practical reason into calling us out of that into a new political body ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ, the true savior. This is a politics governed by a practical reason shaped by Christ's own person and work as exemplified in the life and practice of Paul and those who live according to what Christ focused for that Christ focused pattern. The Lord is calling us today out of calling us out of this politics that surround us, in which there is no Savior and no Lord. In which, sadly, so many people look to their government as their Savior and their Lord. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. Come out out of this false politics. There is a real one who is the one who 
truly cares for you, who can save you and govern you in righteous manner. So, brothers and sisters, we should never feel comfortable here. We should never feel comfortable. This is not our place. We are exiles, sojourners, aliens. We don't belong here. We cannot adopt the practices and the, cel- the things that they celebrate around us. That's not ours. That's not ours. so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking to see so many who profess to love Jesus, who profess to love Christ, being so pathetic when it comes to the kingdom of heaven and heavenly citizenship. Oh, I see some Oh, the national anthem. What a joy to sing. Tears in their eyes as they think about the wars that the U.S. fought. The great freedom that we have. The Constitution of the United States of America. And their anger towards all that's taking place around us. But you never see them shedding a tear when they're singing the glorious hymns towards Christ. You never see them angry when they hear about the persecution of other brothers and sisters throughout the world. Their social media is all about this politics. You never see anything about the kingdom of God, the church. Spurgeon said, What business have foreigners to plot against the government or to intermeddle with the politics of a country in which they have no citizenship? For my part, I'm a foreigner even in England. He was an Englishman. And as such, I mean to act we are simply we are si- simply passing through this earth and should bless it on our transit but never yoke ourselves to its affairs the church has no dual citizenship no government has business with the church no government has authority over the church and the church has nothing to do with government but to proclaim, proclaim Christ. We preach Christ and Him crucified. And we live holy lives to show that our citizenship is not from this place but from another place. For our citizenship is in heaven and from there we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. And let us not fear man. Let us not fear man. 
the body they may kill. But there is a glorious body coming on the way. Some of you know the story of John Patton. John Patton, as he was getting ready to go to the New Hebrides, as a missionary, leaving behind all his comfort, all the good things, he knew that his citizenship was not here, but in heaven, and he knew that there were cannibals that needed to hear the gospel. As he's presenting to some of the men who were in authority over him, his plan to go to the New Hebrides, it's called that in the meeting, it's told us that in the meeting there was a man called Mr. Dixon. And it's important to know that a few years earlier, two missionaries had just died as soon as they got there, eaten by cannibals. And Mr. Dixon tells John Patton, who is going with his wife, the cannibals, you can't leave everything here, the cannibals will eat you. John Patton answers, Mr. Dixon, you are old in age now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms and maggots. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, uh, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by maggots. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Father, help us. Forgive us for forgetting that our citizenship is in the Son, Jesus Christ, who is in heaven right now. So many of us, as we look to our social media, our conversation, have been contaminated with the politics of this world. Deliver us, Lord. Deliver us from these false politics that deliver only false saviors and false lords. Help us to love our heavenly commonwealth. Help us to remember as a church that we are an outpost of heaven. We are to resemble heaven in all that we do here, Lord. We thank You that we do not need to fear anything. You are in charge. You are in control. And one day, this lowly body will become just like the glorious body of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Forgive us for stressing, panicking, depression, for so much concern about our present bodies and our present politics. Prone to wonder, Lord, but you are a good and faithful shepherd, so stretch out your rod and bring us back to this mindset of a heavenly citizenship. Come and make all things new. 
build up this earth, restore our faded paradise with creation second birth. So yes, come Lord Jesus, we pray. And it's in your name that we declare our love towards you. Amen. Amen. Amen.